for November 7th, 2016. It's the Overthinking It podcast, episode 436. You're hacking the universe with your mind code. Welcome to Overthinking It, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably doesn't deserve. I'm Matt Rather, and that's Peter Fenzel. Hey, Pete. Hey, Matt. And uh, Pete is my smart, funny friend, and uh, we are your smart, funny friends from the internet. And uh, today we're talking about Doctor Strange. Yes, the uh, the latest entry in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, the Marvel Paracosm uh, Extended Galactic Empire, uh, and that's just the that's just on Earth. Um, the uh, the Marvel movie starring Benedict Cumberbatch, number one movie in the country, on track to make all the dollars. Um, all the tens of millions of dollars. And I think it was a pretty fun movie, right, Pete? Six, yes. seven, eight. <laughs> yes, it was. I, was. I was thinking, like, is there anything clever I could say about this? I mean, I, I thought it was a very fun movie. It, sincerely, I feel like undercutting it by saying it's something clever would uh, belie – it would, would, would be unfair to a movie that was actually fun as opposed to merely fun in an ironical sort of way. Yeah. Oh, sure. Oh, right. Absolutely. And yep. – and, uh, well, I don't know. Like the role of a fun movie is an interesting thing to talk about. I also like. I also like how you expected me to do my normal rambling four minute introduction, <laughs> so you just put your microphone on mute. Uh, but I threw no. right to you because this is one of our. This is no. one of our. You know what this is? This is one of our storied two handers. Two handers. Uh, in in that uh, storied in that I tell stories about them, and <laughs> <laughs> mostly when we're beginning them uh, like this. And so it's just you and me to talk about. Uh, to talk about Doctor Strange, but we don't need anyone else because we can conjure uh, whatever we need out of air and fold reality at will. So uh, let's do that and ask ourselves the question of the week. And today's question for us, the panel of the Overthinking It podcast, has to do with the magical invisible weaponry of the Doctor Strange movie. And by the way, from this point on, spoilers for Doctor Strange. So if you haven't had it and you don't think you could, you don't think you and a reasonably competent toddler could like outline the plot of this movie in crayon uh, on, a, on a piece of wide-ruled paper, um, then by all means, you know, stick a pin in this one and, and come back to it. Um, but, but you can, you and you and your toddler friend could certainly, uh, plot out, could certainly break this entire story beat by beat. And, uh, and what you're guessing is almost certainly correct in terms of, uh, in terms of what happens uh, in this film, uh, except Benjamin Bratt shows up and it's like, Hey, Benjamin Bratt, how are you doing? It's been a while. Anyway, I was glad to see Benjamin Bratt, uh, in this, um, in this movie. All right, here's the question. There's all this magical weaponry. Uh, Master Caecilius stabs people with like an invisible air sword of like visual distortion. Uh, there are all kinds of, you know, light ray shields, like neon tube uh, shields that are conjured out of, out of thin air. Uh, there is some like silly putty or like, like uh, saltwater taffy um, energy weapons that happen. So in honor of all this invisible weaponry, or at least sort of non Existent uh, weaponry. What is your favorite from all all of popular culture? What is your favorite uh, invisible weapon? What is your favorite invisible way of uh, giving someone a nice thunk on the head? Uh, who's first in the alphabet? Let's see. Drink because it's Pete Fenzel. Now this might be because I saw Blazing Saddles recently, or it might be oh, so because good. I'm. What's, yeah, definitely. And also 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 fun. And also because I recently, of course, I'm a big Dragon Ball fan. But just in general, I am a big fan of they moved so fast that you couldn't even see them. Right. As like a sort of as a technique, uh, in particular, when people play it as if two people are standing still. Right. But, you know, that there's a bunch of sort of crazy, incredibly high speed things that are happening. It's very common in the Dragon Ball uh, anime, right, and also in the comics, although it's harder to show this off in the comics, uh, for them to be moving so fast that the crowd, in, in front of a spectator uh, audience, right, an audience stadium full of people, and two fighters are moving so fast that nobody can see them. And there's always, 
it's always interesting because it's like, well, how do they see each other? Right. There's this idea that when your ability scales up and I think this works in most situations where somebody is moving faster than you can see them, that if you achieve some sort of parity with them, even if it's not related to your sight, then you will also be able to see them sort of as a necessary condition for that to happen. Sure. Um, right. Which which is always sort of an interesting thing that's elided. This idea of I'm so far above your level that you can't see me. Oh, no, I'm on your level. OK, it's it's sort of like a it turns acceleration and velocity into sort of social exclusivity. Right. It's being like, OK, you, you can you can step behind the velvet rope and you can see what's happening. Uh, I mean, in Blazing Saddles, it's when uh when Gene Wilder just sort of uses his finger, right, or like just stands there and shoots all the guns out of their hands, and uh, and you don't you don't see him move, uh, you don't see him take his gun out of his holster, and it's very obviously a gag, which I do appreciate. Uh, but yeah, that, that's what I'm going to go with. I'm going to go with anything like that, and also any time in particular that somebody's somebody gets sort of like something gets cut in half or in thirds, and you can't even see the sword because it moves too fast. Right, that's exactly. It's like, right. Yeah. yeah, the 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 master does not even move from the from the you know whatever position that he. Is standing in um, right. like his his flowing beard is barely ruffled by the, yeah, the yeah. extreme velocity of his his yeah. motion and, and uh, bonus points for every long moment of pause before that happens right so it's like pause he's like got the hand on the on the katana pause 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 <laughs> pause <laughs> Falls in pieces on the ground. Right, exactly. Yeah, the slices, the diagonal slices. You always have to cut an opponent on the bias. Yeah. (laughs) So uh, my answer is, um, my answer actually is, uh, in a certain way, it's the opposite of your answer because it's not something that that moves so fast uh, that you can't see it. It's something that is extraordinarily stationary, extraordinarily massive and massy, uh, and yet you can't see it. And I, I am speaking, of course, of the Klingon bird of prey that is <laughs> under cloak in golden gate park in uh star trek for the voyage home that uh the um and and i'm speaking of one scene in particular uh one scene in particular at the end when the uh, uh the marine scientist her name is jillian uh, i think uh, if memory serves correctly uh she comes to golden gate park looking for kirk and Spock, because the whales have been released out out to sea ahead of schedule. These whales that were her life's work and that are, uh, you know, long story short, going to be the salvation of humanity in the 23rd century. So uh, she's just she's um, desperate to find these kooky guys who uh, uh, she didn't really believe their cockamamie story about being from the future. Uh, but um, she's, they, she's, they, they said that they hang out in Golden Gate Park and she goes there and wanders around looking for them and bumps into the bird of prey. And her, there's this clang as, she, as her head strikes the hull of the ship. And, and it's, you know, you can imagine this. If it were a cartoon, she would vibrate. Uh, you know, and then she steps and stumbles into it again and it's it's i at least the the impression i recall it's been a minute uh it's been a minute since my last star trek four viewing but um the impression that i recall is of like a rising panic and being shot in a kind of claustrophobic way that emphasizes this panic, even if just for a few seconds of this this sequence. And I thought that was really appropriate because if you actually did encounter a uh, a huge, invisible, immovable object that was, you know, knocking you on the noggin, it would probably shake the foundations of your reality a little bit, and you'd probably be a little uh, a little a little freaked out by it. Now I'm uh, I I am on record as being against the realistic move when uh, characters have trouble adjusting to the magical realities of their uh, of their circumstances in films and television because the audience has long ago adjusted to the magical realities <laughs> of their circumstances and so it's just it's just wasted time like oh we get it you're a wizard whoa what there's you know shield is a real thing you know there are there are superheroes like okay like we we know like and let's get to the intro this is not the intro interesting part of the story so all the time you spend here is wasted time um 
But, uh, in this particular case, maybe because it's, it's dispensed with pretty quickly and she's beamed inside the ship. Um, in this case, it, it, uh, it works pretty well for me and and i sort of uh i I sort of enjoy it it sticks with me well uh we so we didn't uh what neither of us actually could come up with an actually invisible weapon (laughs) we we, uh we um well we came up with i was thinking yeah we uh, we came up with things that are visible but that are used so quickly or that are disguised intentionally uh what were you thinking well so i had been thinking about the predator Right. I've been thinking about how the Predator has a cloaking device and has a lot of weapons. And I was thinking whether semantically the individual weapons of the Predator or the individual weapons of anybody that uses a cloaking device would qualify as invisible weapons. So, for example, a lot of the Predator's weapons I could get I could take or leave. I don't care about his pointy stick. I don't care about his self-destruct device, but I like his chakram a lot. Like the Predator's chakram is awesome. And the Predator has a cloaking device. And so even even if the chakram isn't cloaked while it's flying, and I'm having a little trouble off the top of my head remembering whether the chakram of the predator is cloaked while it is in motion, it certainly is cloaked while it is at rest on the predator when the predator is cloaked. Chakram but, in motion. Yeah. <laughs> chakram at rest. Exactly, exactly. So, but does that count as an invisible weapon, right? Like, is the coolest weapon the, you know, the collection, you know, General Marta's collection of batlets on a cloaked bird of prey? Like, no, that's cheating because the, and the weapon itself isn't invisible, right? And then the invisible lasso is, or the, I, I conflated the invisible airplane and the golden lasso of truth. And no, it's not an invisible lasso. Um, I mean, maybe the fish hook that you can use to, to gouge people in the cheek and pull them across dance floors to you. That's a pretty powerful invisible <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's that's probably it um, yep. yeah i mean there there is this uh great comedy tradition of invisible characters right and there's like mm-hmm. an invisible horseman in the three amigos which i think of because you you bring up blazing saddles uh right it's it's three amigos where they shoot the invisible horseman isn't it yes and, yes yes and he yep. sort of falls to the ground and there's this puff of puff of smoke but you don't mm-hmm. actually see the horseman um right. Yeah, uh, that that is also the singing cactus, right? And that's uh, <laughs> shoot this, I think they shoot that as well. Three Amigos is, is the answer to that question. But we didn't watch the Three Amigos. We no. watched uh, we watched Doctor Strange, and we both agreed that this was a. Um, this was a, a fun movie. Now, I was uh, having a text message conversation with a friend, not an overthinker, uh, and I said, oh, I'm going to see Doctor Strange. Um, and my friend said, well, I appreciate those Marvel movies for what they are. Oh, come on. Right. Exactly. And that, and that was that, that, uh, a little bit, I, I wanted to challenge them and say, well, what do you, what, what do you mean for what, for what they are? So, so Pete, is this a good movie for what they are or was it a good movie full stop? It was a good movie. I would say it's a good movie full stop. Yeah. Certainly, my, my girlfriend saw it with me, and she had no idea who Doctor Strange was, had no previous experience of him, didn't really understand how or why he could be a Marvel Comics character, and still thought it was a good movie. So, uh, I would say I would say so. I say, t- as always, Tilda Swinton elevates the dish, right? Uh, <laughs> in, in her in work that she does. But I don't know, I mean, what do you think about it? You asked that question yourself. What's yeah, your I, answer? No, I think that they, that they followed a, a strategy that a lot of the Marvel universe has followed and that the DC universe to be fair or, you know, to, to contrast it. I mean, perhaps you think this is unfair. Um, the DC universe has not followed, which is just higher grade act, like higher actors who are irresistibly fantastic to watch. Right. <laughs> and like, to me, Benedict Cumberbatch is, is one of those people. I understand that he blew up really fast. He got a little overexposed perhaps like, uh, you know, and, and, uh, and, and to be fair, I've heard some interviews with him where he kind of uh, seems to appreciate that, like, this level of frenzy won't surround him forever. So a little <laughs> bit like a little bit. He's like, strike while the iron's hot. And a little bit. He's like, OK, everybody cool your jets. I'm here for a long career in, you know, I'm here for a long career as an actor, not just uh, 
not not just to be another pretty face. Um, I just like you know I just like him so much, and it's it's someone like he leads with intelligence, you know, and that that is for a movie star, right? That is a uh, uh, a unique quality to have, right? Like think of movie stars, you know, uh, uh, Tom Cruise leads with intensity. George Clooney leads with charisma. Brad Pitt leads with a kind of edginess, I guess. Mm -hmm. Right. And, uh, like a kind of kookiness almost. Um, and that right and and uh and Benedict Cumberbatch leads with intelligence and i always i always sort of appreciate that and i think it really suits him to this film which to a certain extent is about kind of expanding intellect or kind of a multi a revealing intellect which you thought to be a kind of a single dimensional thing to be kind of continuous and hyperdimensional to use a word that we or to use a phrase that we uh, often ta- use on the TFT podcast um that uh that intellect as you understand intellect is not necessarily wide or deep enough um to 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 uh con- to denote the the like the fuller comprehension of right. uh of the universe. So long story short, I like to watch good actors. <laughs> I would also add that the Marvel movies, especially when they're good, are a-, a heteroglossia. They are not all the same genre, right? Some of them are different kinds of movies. Now, yes, they all have superheroes in them and I'm sure there are exceptions, but uh you know, something like Captain America the Winter Soldier as a sort of political mystery, right, as a sort of uh, kind of cloak and dagger uh, mystery movie is different from Ant-Man, which is a heist comedy, right, which is different from Thor 2, which is like a sci-fi, you know, a a sci-fi action film. Yeah, it's sort of fantasy, Uh, almost like fantasy horror movie. Yeah, yeah. Like the, the... Uh, the emphasis on like transformation and kind of sacrifice of the body or sort of decay of the body with the, with the dark elves. And these are different from guardians, right? Which are kind of Westerns, which are like kind of Western comedies along the lines of blazing saddles or three amigos or something like that. Right, right, right. right. Yeah. So they're, they're all a little, uh, they're different enough from each other. Yeah. Yes. There is a center of gravity around Iron Man and the Avengers, but they're different enough from each other that I don't feel like it's perfunctory to get these things done. I think there's a form and function uh, advantage that Marvel has over DC in addition to the advantages in kind of, cause I think what DC strategy was, wasn't it that they were going to pick directors, right? The DC was going to, I had heard that at one point when they were coming out with man of steel, that, that the strategy over at Warner brothers was that the DC properties were all going to be directors movies. And that this was going to be the extension of Christopher Nolan. The idea being that each of these heroes is going to have a powerful auteur that is kind of behind what they do. Which is not – I mean there have been directors obviously with the Marvel movies, but they've all kind of been willing to feed the beast, right? To, they've been willing to sort of have their own vision but also supplement what's going on and kind of hook in with each other. And it's really been the writing and the performances that seem to have, have varied more. I'm not sure if that's if that's accurate to say, but it just seems like if you all have different directors but you come out with the same product – um, because you have similar brand Bible style or whatever. I don't know. Whatever. Well, it's right, not like, a particularly compelling, you know, point to make about this movie, but it's a point worth making. Yeah, it's. I mean, it's interesting. Like the um, the directors of, the, of the, the Marvel movies. I mean, you sort of think of actually rather than rather than a kind of a multiplicity of visions, you have a kind of multiplicity of expressions of a single vision because everyone thinks of like Kevin Feige as being the kind of like central. Right, this kind of central yeah. uh, figure uh, who's the producer of all of these movies, but like uh, you know, uh, but for what it's worth, these people are uh, no slouch, right? Like John Favreau, uh, uh, Kenneth Branagh, Shane Black, Joss Whedon, like, and even if they're willing to kind of yoke their yoke their wagon to this sort of larger, oh, Ryan Coogler for for Black Panther uh, for the forthcoming Black Panther, like, uh, you know, th- these are yeah. sort of these are serious. You mentioned you mentioned Shane Black, yes. 
Yeah, yeah, definitely. Okay, I, I, I got lost a little bit in the list. But, directed uh, Shane Black directed Iron Man three. Kenneth yeah. Branagh directed Thor. Uh, John Favreau directed Iron Man, Iron Irons Man or Iron Men uh, one and two. Um, Ryan Coogler is going to do Black Panther uh, in a couple years. Like this is a whole. Um, you know, these are these Every, are these are strong, very diverse group of male directors. Yeah, right. Exactly. <laughs> a, a very diverse group of almost uniformly white male directors, almost, <laughs> almost uniformly white. I'm sure there's is there a Marvel movie directed by a woman yet? I don't know that off the top of my head, but it's not again. That's not that's not what Doctor Strange is about. Nah, but uh, yeah, definitely. Um, I mean, in in the sense that Tilda Swinton manages to kind of uh, take the artistic reins of everything that she does, um, you know, uh, that's that's wonderful. But Tilda Swinton, not not uncontroversial. And I don't I mean, I don't know. There's been a lot of talk about the whitewashing of of the Ancient One character and, you know, whether it's whether it's just straight up racism or whether it's a more sophisticated racism uh having to do with not portraying a tibetan uh a tibetan monk well in in a film that they're hoping is going to play well in china like the you know you hear you hear all sorts of things kind of behind the scenes things and you hear uh, some things that purport to be like, oh, here's the real story. Here's the real story yeah. of why this is. And you know what? Not even the people who know the real story know the real story because these things are 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 so so complicated. Um, so I, I I recognize and I sort of want to not pass over by trivializing the question of Tilda Swinton being cast in this movie that said any yeah. opportunity to watch Tilda Swinton is an opportunity that I will take to watch Tilda yeah. Swinton. So, so go into this a little bit. So in the movie, the movie takes several interesting steps for one. It moves Kamartage in the comic continuity. Kamartage is in Tibet, right? I mean, it's a country, it's a sovereign nation, but it's in Tibet. Uh, in this movie, Kamartage is in Nepal, not Tibet. Interesting difference, right? The ethnicity of the people is completely is completely different. Yeah, uh, in Nepal than in Tibet. Um, in in Kamartage in the movie, I, th- I think there's something about setting it in Nepal, and there's something about the way it's constructed that there's a wide variety of ethnicities that are present in this place. There's a sense that there's a lot of travelers. It's in an alleyway in a major, in like a pretty big city, right? It's in like, it, Kamartaj Ka- is within Kathmandu, yeah, right? Right. Yeah, and it's not right exactly. It's not a sovereign nation. No. It's the name of like a university department or something like that that's in, right. you know, or a facility, right? In yeah, its, it's um, a CrossFit box is what it is. Right, exactly. <laughs> I mean, to to a certain extent, except the box is hyperdimensional. Yeah. It's, a, it's, a, it's a CrossFit hypercube. Yep, yep, yep. Um, but yeah, and then and then so and here's the thing, right? Um, Swinton is in this movie, and this this is, I think, the the if you're willing to uh, to not die on the hill of of the fact that it would be good for these movies to be kind of spreading the money and the influence and the representation around more. If you're willing to kind of look past that for, for the sake of understanding and talking about this movie, not to trivialize it, but to kind of move past it and understand it. It's interesting that, that Tilda Swinton is playing a character who is androgynous, right. And, and ambiguously ethnic, like she's white, but she's ambiguous. And she also looks kind of like an alien and they, and the movie makes her look like really heightens this aspect of her. Both her androgyny and her kind of inhumanity are heightened in this movie. And it's revealed over the course of the movie that there are reasons for this because she's in communion with an evil dimension and she's sort of drawing. She's basically like drawing power from the devil, from like the space devil in order to fuel her immortality and has and in the process become something different uh, slightly in some way than a human. Right. She is. But she's 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 a part Right. It, it's that the, the ancient one is apart from the rest of us. She doesn't even have a name. She's just the ancient one. Uh, and I thought that that was interesting and a cool thing that the movie did with her, where when she stood with all of the acolytes and monks and stuff, she was so different from all of them I, I, that I felt like there was an effect to that. There was a, there was a power to that. And it was interesting because it did not feel like Doctor Strange was supplanting her. In the same way that it sometimes feels in the way the story is told that Doctor Strange supplants the Ancient One to become the Sorcerer Supreme, 
right? Uh, and it's like, oh, I'm taking your job, right? Like you were good at it, but you were you were Asian guy good. I'm white guy good. I'm going to take your job and it's right. going to be better, right? And that's the best. That's the story they didn't want to tell. They were like, well, we can't make this. That's that's like the other story about why it happened. Oh, we can't make this a story about a white guy taking a job from an Asian guy uh, and then give the job to the white guy. So instead, let's just change it. And instead, we'll make the Asian one, the Asian one, the ancient one. Sorry. <laughs> we'll make the ancient one into this ambiguous figure. It is interesting to consider the the racial coding of Bowie Camp, right? Bowie like this idea of kind of androgynous, you know, pre new wave gender camp, uh, this sort of Ziggy Stardust kind of stuff, which is what Tilda Swinton participates in this uh, in in her in sort of the way the public sees her, and as such, it in, in incorporates her work. Uh, I don't know how much she would be doing it if it weren't something that the public openly acknowledged about how she appears on screen. But this idea that, you know, there is a there's a visual language of not quite male, not quite female that can be coded in different ways with regards to race and ethnicity. Prince is different from David Bowie. Mm. Right. They're not the same. Uh, Michael Jackson is kind of in there, too. He and Prince are more similar. Right. Uh, but and when but then Michael Jackson also, as he goes on, adds a different racial dimension to this idea of kind of performative ambiguity. Uh, all right. And so it is it is cool that the movie does this because so much of it is concerned with matter and, and perception being warped. But it's also interesting to think, you know, it's really hard to make somebody who is so ambiguous that they that they lie on all axes at once. Right. There's going to be one or two axes that are going to be highlighted by the ambiguity of a particular person. Right. Like a professional wrestler. China is androgynous in a different way than, say, like um, I'm trying to think who else who is a good example of another like androgynous like RuPaul. Right. Is is uh, not and not androgynous. Right. But like, you know, the, the gender queer, the gender, the different constructions of gender, they all operate in different ways. Different constructions of race all operate in different ways, the way that they're performed, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So I just wanted to I wanted to connect Tilda Swinton's performance in this movie to all of that and not just to the idea that was put forth in the press early on when these trailers were first coming out that she's in this role because she's a strong woman and those are fungible political points that can be spent on your debt to asian people right which is not which is not how this movie works where it's like oh you know well, that would be if they gave it to like julia roberts right and it's like oh but see we cast a, a powerful hollywood woman in the role and that means you should be happy about sandra, that yeah sandra sandra, sandra bullock, bullock is the one that right. i was thinking yeah 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 exactly so it's not that it's much more in the line of like is she or isn't she Right. Does she or doesn't she? Right. He or she, you know, what what it quite is going on with this person, uh, which I thought was cool. But but also, I think not really. Well, right. It, I mean, right. Like the easy it would be easier to accept that to accept that dismissal or to accept that critical judgment if what she did present was gratifying in a more straightforward way. Right. In a more sort of a more kind of old fashioned uh, male gazy kind of way. Right. It would, it would be more pat and it would be less pat. Yeah. And you, uh, what I'm saying is <laughs> you'd be more, you'd be more uh, apt to, to accept the criticism that this is be that, you know, that this is yeah. done for uh, a kind of, a kind of marketplace expediency that is uh, uh, not only reprehensible, but unnecessary in, in the present day. So, so to jump away from that, though, Matt, I wanted to ask you about wizardry. Mm. I want to ask you what you think about wizardry. What? There are, there are wizards in the world? <laughs> Hold on. It's going to take me the rest of this podcast to just come to terms with the premise of this podcast. Look, I don't want to – you tell me that I have magical powers. I'm going to argue with you for 20 minutes about it. I don't want to do it. It's. I did really appreciate how economical this movie was. I don't want to believe you. I don't want to believe you. I don't want to move the plot forward. <laughs> There were like brief moments where Doctor Strange was like, "Okay, this is crazy," and then the next line it was like, "Well, <laughs> that might be true, but this problem isn't going away." And you'd be like, "All right, let's get on it." Uh, but nobody—I I, correct me if I'm wrong—but nobody in the main running time of the movie uses the word wizard. And then in the first of the two after-credit sequences, Thor appears and says, "So there's wizards on Earth now, right?" Oh, the Earth has wizards. Yeah. And this struck me. Did it strike? Did you? What do you think of when you think about the people in this movie? Do you think of Doctor Strange as a wizard? Uh, 
No, I don't, because I don't think of wizards as... I don't think of wizards as sort of spiritual practitioners in quite the same way that this movie portrays. Uh, I, I don't think of wizards as martial artists, you know, <laughs> right. I okay, think, okay. I think of wizards as mad scientists and not as, as martial artists. Right. And I guess I'm thinking of like Arthurian, I'm thinking of like Merlin, you know, long, long bearded sort of, uh, Anglo, Anglo wizards who are, uh, uh, who are yeah, like English absent-minded professor types, you know? Um, and that's, the, that is what the word wizard, uh, connotes for me, not just the mystical powers, but also a certain, a certain personality type. I don't think of them as being particularly disciplined and certainly the whole Harry Potter universe plays with this, right? Like the, the, the wizards good hearted though they are, are kind of bumbling, are bumbling fools. And Harry with the outsider's perspective with the, like the muggle perspective is always remarking that they can, that they can, you know, find their ass with both hands in a flashlight. Um, and because they seem they seem not to be able to uh, a lot of the time, the misunderstanding of the muggle world and and all this stuff that that is second nature to Harry because he grew up in it. Um, the the uh, you know the, so I and, and I don't think of like I don't think of you know broadly speaking Eastern uh, Orientalist Eastern right like mysticism is being wizards but it but it is like uh you know i think it is appropriate for thor to use that word because he flattens the complexities of the understanding to a kind of norse understanding of the, of of what's <laughs> of what's going on right so he's got his own way of looking at looking at the world and and uh it it has to do with his own perspective on the uh on on the facts that that he sees so it's i hadn't thought of them as wizards up to that point but i think it's appropriate that thor calls them that yeah, I thought it was I thought it was interesting. And I think I'm looking I'm looking at one of my favorite websites, which I don't know if I mentioned it a lot on the podcast, but I love the online etymology dictionary at etymonline.com. And, you know, I'm a big fan of the diachronic sense of language and the idea that you are implying old meanings of the words that you use without even being aware of them when you use them contemporarily, because the old meanings have been repeated in different contexts and you always learn words in context. Uh, well, for the most part, you learn words in context. Not always, but you know, for the most part, you learn words in context, and the context carries over. But that before wizard referred to somebody with magical powers or or proficiency in the occult sciences at an online, it referred to a philosopher or a sage. Right. And this means somebody who's kind of older and has studied lots and has a certain wisdom associated with age, uh, which is also associated with, you know, not being a manual laborer in a time when everybody else was a manual laborer. Right. Um, And it's just interesting. So that's idea of kind of the Gandalf wizard who kind of daughters around and is kind of a little bit absent minded, as you said. I I think of mad scientist and kind of Gandalf figure as a as together being making two poles of a pretty big ellipse, right? Like that's a big oval that includes both Doc Brown. Well, Doc Brown is more like Gandalf than certain other mad scientists are, right? Like um, I'm thinking of like Dark City having mad scientists in there. It's very different from, you know, magical beasts and, and whatnot. Um, but yeah, but but the idea that I thought it was really cool how how the 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 um, the Camartage had a cultural uh, aesthetic, that was associated with where it was and the tradition of how they built it. And each of the uh, refuges, each of the um, what's the word that I'm looking for? Not shrines, not refuges. What did they use for the three places? Oh, I'm going to have to ask my friend Google, but go on while I yeah, do yeah. That. each of them had its own aesthetic also. They all had their own look. They were in their own neighborhoods. Um, and this idea that and I, this other thing I wanted to delve into, this idea of the ancient one referring to spells as programming, right? 
this is this is the old you know any any te- technology uh, so so advanced that you can't understand it is indistinguishable from magic right is is the old uh, the old canard being trotted out here the idea that the reason that you can chant a spell and and create a result in the temporal or atemporal world is that you are accessing the source code of the universe through the medium of thought which is at the at the sub sub subatomic level indistinguishable from and matter or energy right and it's like it's all the, the idea that there's sort of a grand unified uh multi-universal cosmology in which thought matter and energy are all part of the same stuff and as such you create these configurations in these spells that are hacking as it were into the universe right uh, because they use something like sanskrit right than the for, uh, for yeah. what it's worth right this is not how actual program actual computer programming yeah. works right like where um oh, by the way sanctums Sanctums, uh, right? The different sanctums. But it it should be sancta, right? Like yeah. uh, is is sancta? Well, you know, I, yeah, I could have to look at. It, it depends what um, what declension of Latin noun. Well, sanctum sanctum is neuter, right? New, new, isn't it? Yeah, or is it saying if it's fourth declension? Yeah, whether it, or I thought it was fifth, but yeah, you're, it's one of those one of the one of the higher order declensions that you don't learn uh, you don't learn about until AP Latin. I, I thought it was second because it's sanctum sanctorum, and that would be a second declension. Oh, that is, plural. yeah, and that, so it would be sancta. Right. Sancta. Yeah. Um, the uh, the um, like it's funny, actual uh, in actual computing. Right. Like the the capacity for executing instructions is distinct from the instructions, uh, the instructions themselves. And it's it's a little less holistic than uh, I mean, I think it's I, I think it's less a sentimental view of the universe and more a sentimental view of computers that you get in. Uh, you get in things like this where it's just like you're hacking the universe with your mind code, you know, <laughs> <laughs> that uh uh it it betrays perhaps a uh less than a, a less than sophisticated understanding of how how actual computers work because computers are in fact inert uh until you do the uh until they are married with instructions but the instructions are are distinct from them it's you know it's different from sort of biological systems where the the um the capacity to reproduce the code is kind of built into the uh, kind of built into the code itself at a, a sub at a you know subcellular level. This is when right. we, this is when we need our biochemist friend on the uh, <laughs> on the podcast. But da- but Dave but Dave wasn't Dave wasn't doing it. But I also I mean a little bit. This is something like the the Marvel Cinematic Universe is scientific, right? It's uh, there is um, there is sort of mysticism in Thor, for example. But even like the the people from Asgard are. Uh, you know, they talk about how, yes, we could talk about this scientifically, but like our culture has sort of settled on the metaphor, but our understanding is still more sophisticated and profound uh, than yours is. It's um, it's just that we happen to use this particular language for uh, for talking about it. It's, you know, uh, so, but it's not, I mean, it's not mysticism. It's not, you know, magical. There's always a, a kind of sciency. There's always a science flavored yeah. explanation. And, and to me, it seems like talking about doing magic, kind of manipulating and, you know, and it's a, it's a, uh, what, what is the power fantasy here? It's like manipulating matter at will, right? It's like the, the, the idea that it doesn't have to be man versus nature. It's kind of man's dominance over things natural that, um, you know, that, that Stephen Strange learns to kind of, uh, learns to, to deploy, um, that like uh speaking of it as like well it's just like programming a computer which is like a normal thing that everybody does right like <laughs> <laughs> you know you know you know what i mean right like yeah. uh like mystical uh mystical powers is its own thing and <laughs> invisible weapons are part, part of, of it, it. <laughs> but i just thought it was it was cool so the idea is that it's what it's what older philosophers would refer to as as natural, right? 
in the sense that that magic is natural in that it operates on the same level as the other laws of physics. Sure, in the sense yeah. of natu- natural, in the sense of natural philosophy. Yeah, yeah. And so every culture that or every way in which a person kind of acculturizes magic is going to be slightly different based on the other aspects of their culture. And so there can be, you know, black magicians and white magicians and and Asian magicians. Right. And they all have kind of a slightly different view on how to interpret through signification their relationship with this ability that the sort of, you know, um, it's, it's like, you know, magic precedes wizard. Right. It's like existence precedes essence. You, you be you regard magic. Exi- you know, you the magic exists out there, but it's unnameable. And then you in becoming the wizard, like give name to it, give understanding to it, but also imbue it with any meaning that it would have, because otherwise it doesn't necessarily have meaning. Although then that keys into one of the other themes of the movie, or at least not themes, but but repeated phrases, which is this idea of, you know, people's lives are short and meaningless in the grander context of things and coming to various sorts of regard for that idea of based on both sort of a zeroth law of robotics, this idea of like humanity is of greater consequence than individual people. Right. Uh, which Dr. Strange talks about in a couple of different contexts in interesting ways. And so does uh, so does the not Rutger Hauer guy. Uh, this this uh, this 80s villain of a 90s villain of a uh, 2016 villain who is uh, in this movie. But um, you mean do you mean Master Caecilius? <laughs> yes, I love the part where he's like he's not evil, and it's like not evil. Like look at your face. Yeah, <laughs> it's like your face is so evil. And I mean, we're all thinking that it's like they've got horrible black eyes like they must be evil. Right. But of course, that 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 being there in a movie that's highly concerned with racial coding and signaling is is also kind of problematic. Yeah, really. like you have a shifty face. Um, but it but it totally is. It's totally the way that it works in that Doctor Strange can be a Doctor Strange kind of wizard. But then 12 Years a Slave got what's that actor's name? I got to memorize that actor's name because he's not going anywhere. He's a big star now. All right. So uh, and this is this is the guy. Did he win the Oscar? Uh, Chuetel uh, Ojafor, right? Ejiofor, yeah. Ejiofor, Ejiofor. Who was Ejiofor? Okay. Yeah, and you, you'll you'll recall him as the agent in uh, Serenity, right? Mm-hmm. Like, oh, okay. Has a, gotcha. I, I mean, is a fantastic actor and has a sort of long and long and storied. Uh, long and story career doing all kinds of really great, all kinds of really great stuff. Yeah. I feel like he so often plays a character who is surprisingly grounded and, and, oh, and has a, yeah. Yeah. And, and so like he's, whereas he, in the, in a scene where there's, there's him and another actor, the other actor is usually weirder than he is in, in terms of their character even though his characters have a lot of depth and and uh, and texture, but it's hard for me to identify with him any individual character he's played. Uh, I, I mean, he's what is it? It's uh, I'm, I'm looking through the list now, and it's not just because Twelve Years a Slave, uh, you know, is it was Solomon. Well, yeah, he's North done of. some. He's done some. Uh, uh, you know, historical drama stuff like Amistad and yeah. and Twelve Years a, a Slave, but he's also done like um, Inside Man, the Spike Lee movie that had Denzel yeah. Washington in it, and and then some sci-fi sci-fi stuff where this. Uh, you know this sort of where this kind of grounded quality can lend him can lend him a, a calm as kind of the eye of a CGI storm or something right. like that or That's can a great like way of describing him yeah totally know. and and as such it's hard for me to to have a good euphemism to refer to him as uh, as much as I could, re- I mean, as much as I could refer to Smaug as also being in this movie, uh, which is which is lovely. Uh, by the way, the end credits, the initial end credits sequence with all of the the sort of parts and pieces and cogs, like and, and ornate stuff spinning around. Yes, I, I felt like you could have taken that sequence and put it at the end of almost any Benedict Cumberbatch project, <laughs> whether it's like Sherlock Holmes or it could have been the gold from Smaug's cave, right? Or it it could have been, you know, the Star Trek Into Darkness could have had that. Uh, that was just Benedict Cumberbatch CGI um, Baroque, just right there. Uh-huh. So yeah, so I guess is Steam, it Ch- Ch- steampunk. Ch- he's the he's the the he's the steampunk actor, right? He's, he's just the steampunk actor. And Ch- is it Chiwetel? I think or it's Chiwetel? I think it's Chiwetel. At least Chiwetel. the the uh, the IPA uh, transcription that's in. Um, 
that's on Wikipedia says uh, Chiwetel. He'll have his big iconic role yet to be, right? He'll have the role he wins his Oscar for. Yeah. Chiwetel Ejiofor. Yeah. Yeah, totally. It'll happen. It'll totally happen. Super. Yeah. Super, super actor. Um, But yeah, sorry. What was your, what was your point about, uh, uh, what was your point about Mr. Ejiofor? Oh, just that he had a particular interpretation of what it meant to be a wizard in the way that his character was represented with those fleet foot shoes. And by the way, am I the only guy here who thought that the staff of the living tribunal was a little underpowered in this movie? Like that's, that's really the staff of the living tribunal. I mean, come on. Uh, but that's sorry. That's uh, I, I I'm guessing you're just sort of staring at your microphone now, not knowing what I'm talking about. Um, but the living tribunal is one of those characters who shows up in conversations about hypothetically, who is the most powerful character in Marvel comics uh, he's this celestial being of great and vast power, unfathomable, you know, beyond existence, all this other stuff, powers to warp reality and all these things. And he has a stick that uh, that uh, um, that Mordo Mordo is. See, that's not a memorable name, Mordo. And they never he never says it. I mean, Carl. I mean, his first name is Carl, you know, like uh, yeah. <laughs> Carl. You can just call him Carl, you know, Carl. Right? OK, we'll call him Carl. So Carl, he's, he has an, he has an auto body shop down the down the road. You know? <laughs> but at any rate, his idea of a wizard is different than maybe my favorite character, which is Wong. Wong was. Did you like Wong? Matt? Yes. <laughs> Wong, you know, like Bono. <laughs> Like uh, like Eminem, <laughs> Beyonce, oh the librarian man. So th- th- I guess this is as good a time as any to transition to how funny this movie is, right? Yeah. yeah. And what what do you feel like that that does that does for you? If the I mean if the movie weren't, uh, I I feel like there there is a lot of humor in in the uh, in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, but in the mainstream Marvel Cinematic Universe, which I'm going to define as Iron Man, Captain America, and the the Avengers, Avengers team up movies, um, it's generally um, it generally diffuses tension or sort yeah. of under or sort of undercuts like it, it sort of it gives you a permission structure for accepting the grandiosity because it it reveals it as being like tongue in cheek but also not tongue in cheek at the same time that we all know you know we all know uh we all know this is a little ridiculous but you know what we're all going to commit to it anyway uh and it it seems like it functions different in guardians and i feel like it functions different uh, I feel in like Ant Man. I think, yeah, sh- sure, and it functions. So these are the these are like the ancillary, the lesser, the lesser heroes, right? And it feels like it it uh, functions differently here. Yeah, um, yeah. So what does it what does it do for you? This humor. So so the humor, it, the hu- part of what the humor does is it. It, it 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 discards from the film this idea that we are trying to portray an ascendance to importantness, right? That 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 it is it is creating space. The humor creates space for what the movie could be about because it disarms the whole notion of magic from being the point. Right. Uh, It's like, oh, man, like you can imagine there are a lot of movies. Never Ending Story is probably the big one that jumps to mind where the power and presence and tone of everything that's magical and, and special is just so ingrained. And kind of even when it's even when it's a level of abstraction away from direct, it's just so earnest. And it's just and it's almost it's almost oppressive in how serious it's certainly very German in that movie, you know, right. For obvious reasons. But it's just very, very present and strong and has a lot of pressure to it and 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 this idea that as a human you're coming into contact with this thing that's greater and bigger and more powerful than you and that there is a drive among each of us to seek this out the uh the the great and powerful oz uh, what's the bad guy with the black eyes in this movie um what's his name some names in this movie are ridiculous master Um, master caecilius master caecilius yes master caecilius talks about this about people People's kind of yearning for the infinite for right for Dormammu for Dormammu <laughs> Dormammu I've come to bargain <laughs> that scene is so wonderful I mean let's just talk about that scene well yeah right? I mean that that scene is 
that scene is wonderful and the the humor i mean the and and humor in the form of like it that's almost a who's on first type of routine you yeah. know where where one person knows it's a joke and the audience knows it's a joke but the other character in the routine doesn't know it's a joke and that's what the joke is you know right, right. <laughs> <laughs> that there's it's a weird combination of of dramatic irony and and a sort of uh, a sort of derisive laugh at a stupid person (laughs) (laughs) who happens to be immensely powerful and immortal right right is this giant immortal demon and this was just such classic dr strange this is just how dr strange operates where he has to make bargains and he has to kind of you know uh, go and confront something that's just so hugely more powerful than he is and has to find some sort of tricky way and some sort of tricky magical object uh to deal with them in some way but it makes it makes the movie. I mean, the simple way is to say that it makes it humanistic, right? Because humans laugh at things, and laughter. And our laughter is often in this movie in particular. Our laughter is often a laughter of recognition of something that is like us in a context that feels foreign uh-huh. and feels strange. I think, right? Like, um, like what's it? What's it? I mean, the Beyonce stuff is a great example of that, right? Um, the idea that you should have the warnings before the referring to the magical tomes as if they were like drug prescriptions or if they as if they were uh instruction manuals for dvd players where it's like well of course all the warning labels are supposed to go on the front the idea that an occupational therapist or like a user experience guy would have problems with the secret library of of uh right <laughs> of of, uh, of mazel Tov or wherever it is they are uh, <laughs> um like like it's taking something it's 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 the the world is sort of rarefied and brings us into this strange place, right? Dr. Strange goes out there and regards all the strange things, but by being able to be humorous, he he establishes a form of control over them, but because the humor is so often self-effacing, it doesn't, he manages, I mean, that's sort of his character arc in the movie, is he goes from being somebody who needs control to somebody who is willing to kind of uh, allow things to happen um, in ways that he can't control, or at least in ways that put him at the bottom of the totem pole, he's willing to be a servant manager of the of the uh, cosmos rather than a like top down manager of the cosmos, right? Where he's like, I'm just giving the cosmos what it needs to do its job, right? Like uh, I'm, I'm just there to preserve the natural order of things, uh, and a lot of the a lot of the uh, humor is like that, I think. Um, yeah, like when he I, yeah the, when he the, jumps out when he jumps out of the astral projection and points to Rachel McAdams that he wants her to put the needle like another inch up on his chest to make sure that she gets it exactly right and it's like oh he's such a vain jerk he's such a prick right that he's doing this um, it, it brings him down a notch it brings Doctor Strange down a notch and it brings all of the magic down a big notch uh, and it makes the magic still impressive but it allows us to see well what is really going on here it's like acid in a very fatty meal it clears it out and allows room for other flavor profiles sure. I don't know what do you think yeah I, I mean I think that's right I think the Beyonce joke I was kind of thinking about the Beyonce joke in particular and I think one of the functions of the Beyonce joke is 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 to flatter the audience audience a little bit right like to, to because the beyonce joke says to the audience ah uh, yes indeed the things that you think are important are in fact important you know and, yes and the things yeah. that the the things that the fancy characters uh the fancy librarian thinks uh are important like you know not touching the books or stealing them or anything like those aren't as uh those aren't as important as uh as as they think right like it's sort of but then so so Okay, I, I mean, I think there's a natural next question from from what you've said. It sort of makes it not a movie about magic. Like, uh, to to a certain extent, I uh, plot wise, I think it's a little disorganized. I'm not quite sure what it's a movie about in right. the end. Right? Like, is it about? Uh, uh, an arrogant man being humbled? No, not totally. Is it a is it a like a family romance? Is it a Harry Potter style movie about like uh, a guy who thought he was uh, thought he was normal beca- becoming extraordinary, or a kind of interesting twist on that? Like a guy who thought he was extraordinary but wasn't becoming actually extraordinary? Is it about his? Um, 
you know, uh, his making up with Rachel McAdams? Is it about the relationship between him and the Ancient One? Is it about the compromise that the Ancient One uh, made with Dormammu and the Dark Dimension? Is it, is it about, you know, how, you know, never meet your, uh, never meet your androgynous heroes because they'll always disappoint you? That's what, that's what it's about for Chiwetel Ejiofor. Uh, I, uh, you know what I mean? I could, I could go on, but, but did you feel like once the idea that, you know, oh, this is a movie about kind of grandiosity and, uh, and pomp and circumstance and magic stuff, um, do you feel like that is, uh, uh, do you feel like, what, what do you feel like is left? Like to, if I had to ask, if I what asked I think you, the movie is about, yeah, if I asked you what the, what the movie, so, could, could you tell me in a sentence what the movie is about? Do, do you think you'd be able to do it? Yeah. Okay. He'll make an attempt. So what the movie is about is it's about the the relationship between knowledge and stewardship, uh, and I, which I would say is also reflected in the relationship between. Okay, so then the the important. Sorry, I don't mean to I don't mean to interrupt you, but but I get what you're saying. So like yeah. it's the the important movement is like at at the beginning he knows how to cure people but won't take cases he he's not guaranteed success on, and at the end of the movie he'll he'll plunge into a thing on a wing and a prayer uh, because no one else is going to. I would I would add to it. I would say that in the beginning he knows less than he thinks he does. And at the end, he knows more than he would normally want to. And at the beginning, he is uh, he is seeking out um, personal fulfillment in, in the achievements uh, of his knowledge. Right. And in in the end, he is seeking out. I think I think that that one must imagine Dr. Strange happy. I think uh-huh. is very important. And I think, I think, I think there, there's like there's three big scenes in this movie. Well, there's four, but one of them is sort of a combo scene, right? There's four big scenes in this movie: the one, the two, and the one that I think are really the heart of what the movie is about. And and, the, and any explanation of what the movie is about has to connect these four points, the two in the middle of which are connected. The first one is the the surgery scene where Rachel McAdams is operating on Doctor Strange's body using science while the astral projection of Doctor Strange is fighting the Dormammu zealot astral projection using magic. And the idea that Doctor Strange has to defeat the Ormamu zealot by channeling the electrical charge from the defibrillators that are attempting to restart his heart into the astral plane so that they can be projected onto the astral form of the zealot, right? And this idea that Doctor Strange has multiple different kinds of knowledge that have come to fit together and that he operates in multiple different spheres, like that he's legitimately expanded, that he thought he knew everything and now he knows more, right? And that, and that, and he knows more and it's good that he knows more and that he's also combining multiple different schools of knowing and he's also collaborating, right? There's, there's a lot of different crossing of different sorts of specializations that's happening, right? And that, and that's a big thing that happens in this movie where you can know everything and then still have whole worlds opened up to you. Right. right? It's like your friend who can like hook up an old VCR to a new television or something right. like that, you know, like that, that like there's just a sort of knowledge of kind of fundamental the fundamentals of it, but also of the particular, you know, like, can, can we get out on a yellow composite video jack and go into our HDMI TV somehow, yeah. you know, that, or, that, and also the idea of like, I can make the best and most efficient and streamlined manufacturing process. And I can make a product that people want to buy. Right. Like, and those are two different, entirely different realms of thinking, Sure, but they, they are at their most powerful when they're together. The second moment is the ancient one's speech about the moment of her death. And how it kind of extends, right? And how she's seen it many, many times through foreseeing many, many different things. And she's finally come to the moment of her death, which she she sort of extends and considers. And you think of her as well. She's ex- seems to have experienced her own death many, many times. And here she is in the moment of her own death. And there's a sublime beauty to it, right? And it's it's beautiful and it's painful. And she doesn't want it to 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 pass. But she but it's also not necessarily a bad thing. 
Right. And then this is this is the problem of kind of the overthinker who keeps himself up at night. Right. This is something I'm sure a lot of our audience understands if they come to a place like overthinking it, where you start thinking terrible thoughts about death and about the end of things and about the infinite. And the the anxiety kicks in and you can't handle it. And you need to find some way of getting around this idea of the infinite. Right. And and the idea that there is a further wisdom wherein you come to accept that. And when you come to accept that, then what does that do for you. Sure. I mean, right. I would, I would, I would, I would put it in a, uh, uh, I think there is a uh, positive way to tell that story also. It's like you come to the end of a book that you've loved and you read the last paragraph over and over and over for 20 minutes, not yeah, wanting, yeah. not wanting that, uh, you know, that book to end. And the, the reality of endings and the reality of separation and the reality of like, uh, the intersection of the finite and the, the infinite, the, uh, the finite book and the infinite contemplation that's, that's right. possible creates a kind of sublime beauty. And it's painful because it's a separation, but it's also uh, it's also exquisite to to a certain extent. Exactly, and and this is connected to like the idea of expanding your what you're willing to know uh, from one field to another field is also. Uh, connected to expanding what you're willing to know from the middle part of a thing that has a beginning and an end toward the end of it, right? And then the, the other moment that's connected to that moment is when Doctor Strange and Rachel McAdams are having their notebook moment, right? Which is which is amazing that it exists that that Rachel McAdams has been hired to be held uh, with one hand, right? And then looked into her eyes in a frozen moment that's remembered forever, and how that moment feels elongated in the movie in much the same way the moment of the Ancient One's death is elongated and shows Dr. Strange understanding and demonstrating that he's like the understanding of doing is a big part of this movie, right? That, that he's not just a researcher. Like Dr. Strange never considers like, Oh, why don't I just go on the lecture circuit? Why don't I get a job as a professor? Right? Like they never go through that part of it. Cause he could, right. He could just be an academic or he could just, he could work for a biotech company and they'd oh, be no, glad he's, to have he's the wrong kind of doctor. Yeah. Oh, he is. Yeah, he's an MD doctor. You know, they only take oh. PhD doctors in the academy, right? <laughs> he's got a PhD, but uh, I hear what you're saying. Totally. I, I, he's, but he's a hands-on guy. He he's a captain. He belongs with the starship. He's a doer, right? And and as a doer, he needs to con- he considers he he deepens his understanding of what it is to be in the moment of t- of making an action, right? And so this idea that he's parting with Rachel McAdams, it could be forever, right? But this moment hangs in time, and it's like, oh, all moments hang in time. Right. Oh, the infinite is always present. Right. This this thing that's greater than what I think of is always there if I look for it. Um, and then there's the the Dormammu I've come to bargain scene, which is just so where he just says it's OK if I die over and over and over and over again because the people on Earth live. Right. And he reads the last chapter of his own life over and over and over again with Dormammu, right? And sort of comes to a, a, a much different understanding of it. And and I don't think it's just, I don't think it's just that he's being selfless. I don't. I don't think it's that it's he's saving the world. I think he really appreciates and is having fun with participating in this, right? Like the degree of knowledge he has of the circumstances such that he gets to watch a god figure it out. Like he watches a god figure out what he knows. Mm-hmm. And and that to him is is satisfying, right? And that his his knowledge has been expanding over the course of the movie. And he gets to this point where he's able to be more clever than this giant celestial being. But in order to do it, he has to dispense with this idea that uh, that it's always that he's always going to come out on top because of it, right? Like if you're going to take pleasure in knowing things, you you also should need to take pleasure of knowing that you're going to lose, right? Um, and, and and that is all interesting, right? Um, so so I feel like any explanation of the whole movie altogether and all the explanation of what magic is uh, altogether for this movie should should connect these moments. And and I think this idea of of the sort of this the the this idea that He's he is moving from the personal sphere into the sort of impersonal sphere with regards to how he lives um, is important, but he's not just becoming a martyr. 
he's becoming contingent, right? He's becoming contextualized, right? He's like understanding his, his drawing power from understanding where he is in the universe, right? And, and that, that it's interesting in the in this connection, the the conversation that he and Rachel McAdams have it early in the movie is like, why why is there no procedure named after me? I've invented all these procedures. Why are they not yeah. named after me? You know what I mean? And the idea the yeah. idea of having something named after you, the idea of being kind of uh, translated from something that's contingent to something that is uh, that's sort of permanent, right? Like is is uh, important to him at the beginning and and less so at the end, right? And I think this goes back to what the humor does because humor, especially self-effacing humor, is about knowing the truth even when it's uncomfortable. And humor gives you a way to know uncomfortable truths, right? The whole thing about like. Uh, oh, Mr. Strange. No, it's doctor. Mr. Doctor. No, it's strange. It is, I guess. Right. Like, (laughs) I guess it is, but that's okay. We're not going to deal with that right now. Right. This, this, uh, this, and there's like, there's a truth there. It's a big, yeah, it's a, it's a stupid name. It's a big building with doctor. It was sick people and doctors in it, but that's not important right now. (laughs) Realizing that your name is a construction is a similar realization to realizing that your life is finite. Right. And it's like, well, you know, it, it has a truth to it, but you know what? Benedict Cumberbatch still wants to be called doctor because he didn't go to medical school to be called Mr. Strange, uh, which which is a great thing. And I also love the cape. The cape is great. That was another great part of the movie. (laughs) (laughs) Also, he has a cape. All right. Uh, Might be time to wind down this uh, particular episode of the Overthinking It Paracosm, the uh, Overthinking It podcast universe. Thanks very much, Pete, for uh, podcasting with me. Our two hands, I think, made uh, made, uh, conjured many invisible weapons and uh, and and sliced this movie before it knew what was happening. And now it's it's falling into diagonal slices. We didn't even talk about the, the Christopher Nolan influence. We'll have to save that for a later conversation. Well, I I, I think they're not. I think the Marvel movies aren't going anywhere, so we're going to have all kinds of uh, opportunities to talk about lots of different stuff. Thanks uh, very much to the listeners for listening. Thank you uh, for listening. Um, We will be back next week with more Overthinking It podcast. Till then, visit us on the web at Overthinking It, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny. It probably probably doesn't... Hey, you know that part earlier in the podcast where I said that the Predator was cool? Well, I'm going to arbitrarily change my mind and say the Predator's not cool. How's that for a cliffhanger, Benjamin Bratt? Is that is that metaphor carry? Does that does my point get across? No that- more <laughs> Predators. <laughs>